I am Alon Benmir, and welcome to another episode of On the Issues. My guest today is Chuck Friedrich, a former Deputy National Security Advisor in Israel and author of the book Israeli National Security, A New Strategy for an Era of Change. You can find more information about Chuck and his book on the page for this episode. I really thank you, Chuck, for taking the time. Thank I think you. It's, uh, there's probably no more opportune time to discuss the subject of your wonderful book about Israel's uh, national security and the strategies for the future. And um, I think for our listeners, probably would be wise to, for you to give me a sort of a general uh, brief summary of what this book is all about, and what is your objective, what it is that you want to convey, and to whom. Well, first of all, again, I appreciate the opportunity uh, to be pleasure. here today. The book is different in two ways, or unique even, because hundreds, maybe thousands of books have been written over the years about different aspects of Israeli national security. This is, I think I can say objectively, the most comprehensive book on the issue to date. It brings in the uh, diplomatic, the military, the societal and demographic issues, uh, the threats Israel faces, the responses it has developed to deal with these challenges. So it's unique in that way in terms of its comprehensiveness, but even more importantly, it's the first and only attempt to date to present a comprehensive proposal for an Israeli national security strategy. And this is something which hasn't been done. It was done once in a classified manner, a truly impressive effort led by Dan Merido in 2006. Yeah, yeah, I know. Dan Merido uh, did that. That's right. A very comprehensive review, but that was classified. Mm -hmm. That's the only exception to what I'm saying. So this is the only... Uh, public proposal. Now, I don't pretend to have all the wisdom, and I don't think that everyone will agree with all of my proposals, and that's fine. But the important point is now, for the first time, we have a written platform, a written basis for discussion, so that there are dozens of proposals. They're all um, explained and justified in, I hope, painstaking uh, detail. And now, okay, people can legitimately come and disagree, but now that let's have a fact-based discussion. Mm -hmm. And incidentally, was this vetted by Israel National Security Apparatus? Yes, uh, as a former national, as a former defense official, it had to get a security clearance. I say, yeah, uh, which I must say was was uh, lengthy, but was really uh, remarkable. And I have nothing but good words to say for them. Uh, first of all, hardly any changes were made, and all the things that were done were, were it was very limited. It had no effect on the substance, really. Mm -hmm. I see. Yeah. So, any any other point that you would like to elaborate on in this in this at this point? Well, there are a number of uh, primary proposals that I can mention if you want, or we can get yeah. into. But that. I, what I let, let me begin by um, perhaps we can take it, you know, backwards instead of forward. Uh, today, Israel is experiencing significant threats. 
at least this is what is being conveyed mm -hmm. by the security military establishment. Now, to what extent the threat is real or made so that the public will be influenced to think to, to suggest otherwise. In particular, I'm referring, of course, to the Iranian threat and the threat from Islamists, specifically Hezbollah, Hamas, and others. So let, let, let me begin first with the first one, that is, how real, from your perspective, and I know he spoke about it extensively, uh, the Iranian threat. Let me start by saying that I think that Israel has never been more secure and stronger militarily than it is today, and consequently better positioned to make some of the fundamental national decisions that it has to make. And I think that some of the good news, especially since we just celebrated Independence Day a few, a few days ago, Israel's 70th anniversary, Israel cannot be destroyed today. Um, we, one of the great successes of Israel's national security strategy has been that we've won our existence. And there are, I don't believe that there are, truly are any more existential threats. If Iran goes nuclear, there's a potential nuclear threat. I think we can deal with that with Israel's capabilities. So, Chuck, in this, on this particular okay. issue, why is it then, from your perspective, Netanyahu continue to talk about the Prime Minister Netanyahu, continue to speak about existential threat, not just from Iran, even by some of the you know, Islamist various groups. What it is that he is continuing to hammer, basically he is uh, he's a, he's a fear monger. He is one who is spreading fear among the Israeli population. Uh, and I, I know that he has a political agenda. Wh wh where this come from? And how? And, and, and you, as a, as a person who has been involved in national, national security, how do you see it? How do you interpret that? First of all, I agree with you that it, he has a political agenda, and I think he does it because it's a way of building support. And I think that the repeated comparisons to 1938 were both incorrect and uh, I find it offensive because Israel was established to create a situation in which there could never be a 1938 again. And right. I think we succeeded in that. But that doesn't mean that the threat that Iran poses to Israel isn't a very real and very severe threat. I think it is. Uh, it is overplayed at times, but it is a very real threat. And you can argue whether a nuclear Iran truly poses an existential threat or not. I don't think there's anyone in Israel who thinks that it isn't a dire threat. But it is a dire threat, I agree with you. And let us assume for a moment that Israel will, I mean Iran, will acquire nuclear weapons. But based on what everything we know, Israel already has mm -hmm. a considerable stockpile of nuclear weapons, and it has terrific deterrence in that regard. It certainly retains second strike capability, even if Iran, let us Iran, attack Israel with a nuclear weapon. Certainly Israel will suffer massive casualties. But would you say that Iran could be practically destroyed if Israel retaliates? Israel has a policy of not acknowledging or we know, yeah, denying we know that. So, yeah. so it's nuclear it's purported nuclear capabilities, and I'm not going to change that policy today. If the international reports are correct, then I think that Israel's deterrence should be sufficient to prevent Iran from ever using the nuclear 
of future nuclear capability. But there are two things that you have to say. First of all, we could be wrong. I think the Iranians are rational players. I think they are very, very carefully calculating players. That's what makes them so dangerous. I think that they are the most sophisticated, uh, the smartest adversary Israel's ever faced, and therefore the, the most dangerous adversary. Now, I really don't think that they could ever use a nuclear bomb against Israel. I agree Israel. with you. I don't think okay. so either. But we could both be wrong. And the minute there's that, that possibility of being wrong, then that does put you in a in an existential, existential ballpark, and that changes everything. But to what end, if they also if they know that Israel has second strike capability that could in fact destroy them, if they are so calculating, and I agree with you one hundred percent, when they consider this, my, from where I'm coming, I'm thinking in terms of Iran we would want to have a nuclear weapon as a deterrent rather than a means by which to attack anyone, including Israel. Well, I agree with you fully that they want it as a deterrent. The question is whether it's only as a, de as a deterrent or not. And again, if we're wrong, and maybe the chances are 1% that we're wrong, but that makes it a potentially existential 1%. And so Israel, I think, has to treat it as an existential threat, mm -hmm. even if it isn't. But I think that the, the primary danger isn't that Iran will use it, but that the influence that it will give Iran in general, in the region and specifically vis-a-vis -vis Israel, and in some future conflict. And let me just give you an example. Suppose, yeah. Supposing there's a conflict with Hezbollah or Hezbollah in Syria or Iran's presence in Syria. And Israel is now launching an offensive to try and deal with this. And Iran says, uh, hey guys, remember, no, you cannot do this or else. And they don't even have to make an explicit nuclear threat. They just hint at it. And you're in a different ballpark. Uh, a ballpark which becomes potentially existential. And the states behave very differently when they're facing threats of that magnitude. But then again, Chuck, you know, this argument is, is pretty much theoretical. And that is, uh, there is the 1% if, if Iran becomes a nuclear weapon, which it might, and if Iran is going to threaten Israel existentially. Again, there's a big, big ifs there. Uh, but Israel, as you so well articulated in the book, Israel today, as it stands, it cannot be destroyed by any enemy, including Israel, because that will be will bring just nothing but peril to the to the attacker, whoever that may may be. Uh, then, if Israel in uh, today as strong as you portrayed it, which I, and I agree with you, why is it Israel? is not behaving as such where it can actually modify, for example, its policies toward the, the Palestinians, toward Hamas, toward Hezbollah, because if you, if you are so powerful, you can certainly negotiate your own position of strength. And I know where you stand in terms of the organization you are part of, uh, your feelings toward the, the occupation. I'm, I'm purposely switching into, mm -hmm. that is, if Israel, we're taking Israel, we negotiate and in a, in a in a position to negotiate from a position of power, but it doesn't seem to be willing to do that. Well, I would say two things. First of all, to step back for a minute, we as a people, the Jewish people, have a lot of baggage. Okay? 2,000 years of Jewish weakness, of uh, dispersion, of persecution, 
the pogroms in the 19th century, and of course culminating in the Holocaust. And uh, it will take centuries for the Jews to get over that. I've always said there's the famous, there's the iconic Holocaust picture of the little boy with his hand up and hands up and the, yes. the Nazi soldier with his, pointing his gun at them. He's being marched off. I don't remember if it was Auschwitz or whatever. I say that there is a little bit of that little boy in every Jew today. And we're 70-something years since, That's 73 right. years since the other So to understand Israel, you have to understand that this is a primal fear of looking into the abyss and we could be annihilated tomorrow. Uh, without, if you don't understand that fear, then I don't think you can understand uh, the Israeli psyche. And I think it's to this point, it's a very overstated fear because we've become as strong as we are and no one can destroy us. But countries' self-perception is color, colors their policy. So that's in the background. Then you're asking more immediate questions. Okay, that's the broad setting. Why hasn't Israel turned this sense of strength into a peace process? Practical strategy to... Yeah, well, some, government, some governments have. Remember that uh, the Rabin and Paris government did. Yes. And then Barak did with some dramatic proposals, both on the Palestinian and Syrian front. He couldn't have offered much more than he did. And Omer then in 2008 with the Palestinians, again, there wasn't too much more to offer. As a matter of fact, if we're talking just on the Palestinian front, Israel offered virtually 100% of the Palestinian demands except for the right of return. And even there, Barak, before the Second Intifada, was willing to do something like 100,000 over 10 years. Uh, yeah, and the family reunification, etc. Okay. Yes. And the fact is that Arafat rejected it out, outright, and, and Abbas walked away from Omer's proposal in 2008. He also walked away from the talks in 2014. Now, I think that this government in Israel is a hardline right-wing government, has no intentions whatsoever of making any of the significant concessions required. But there's a question whether the Palestinians are willing to make any deal whatsoever or whether they're really still fighting 1948. And I don't know the answer to that. Obviously, there are some Palestinians of one ilk and some of the other. But as a body politic, have they crossed the Rubicon, whether they're really willing to live in a Palestinian state next to Israel on almost 100% of the West Bank? Not quite. But is it not possible? I mean, given the fact that today you have nearly 700,000 settlers in the West Bank, including East Jerusalem. Uh, how viable is the option? That is, what is, in my view anyway, what Netanyahu has done made it extremely difficult, if not impossible, to meet the basic requirement of a two-separate independent Israeli and Palestinian state. But it is two-state solution. The prospect of a two-state solution is diminishing, and Netanyahu in particular has contributed greatly to that given the fact that Israel in the last 10 years, while he is in power, has become even stronger than ever before. Well, the number of settlers in the West Bank, excluding Jerusalem, is 400,000. Yes, yes. And of the 400,000, only between 80 and 100 live beyond the uh, few percent that... Uh, pretty much everybody recognizes will remain part of Israel in, uh, in the um, land swaps that, right. again, the Palestinians also recognize will 
will have to happen. BP has increased the population, the settler population, but overwhelmingly in those areas that we're going to keep. It's you know there's in the areas for the land swaps, the, the so-called the three settlement blocks. That's right. Yes. There's only been about two thousand people a year outside of the blocks. Now you can say only two thousand, or you can say ten years times two thousand is already twenty thousand. That's already a significant number. Look, there's no doubt that it's getting harder and harder to make a two-state solution, and we're making it harder. And at some point, we're going to reach the point of no return. I don't know exactly what that means, the point of no return, when it happens. Let me remind our listeners that back in the early 90s, at the height of the Soviet, the Russian Jewish immigration to Israel, when the Soviet Union collapsed, we were taking in 30,000 immigrants a month. A month, people who didn't speak the language, came from a different culture, didn't have jobs, didn't have homes, didn't have schools for their kids, and we absorbed them. So that the idea that we can't absorb 100,000 settlers, that's nonsense. We can move them. We can move them easily. The problem is the political will to do it. Incidentally, do you think that we, suppose there's a government who will make this decision. Do you think the settler will move peacefully? I know it's a society question. I think, Just that, perception. No, I think the, the answer is that 99% of the people will move uh, they'll scream and shout, they'll demonstrate, they'll burn some tires, uh, they'll blast <laughs> some yeah. music. But then there's the 1%, 1% of 400,000 is, is 4,000. And of that 1%, a fraction will go violent, and the rest will kick. Yeah. Uh, now, I agree with your assessment in this regard. But if the fraction, the fraction that I'm talking about means that there can be bloodshed this time. Yeah, and in Gaza, yeah. the, there wasn't anything. That's right. People portrayed it, it was going to be some sort of horrible thing. In the end, it was nothing. This time, it won't be nothing. Right. And we have to be prepared for that because we're talking, are we going to remain a Jewish and democratic state or not? We're going to pay a price for this. Exactly. Now, I'm just going to go back to your theme in terms of Israel defense. Now, there is the occupation. As I see it, to me, the occupation has become, <clears throat> excuse me, a security liability rather than security asset. Hey, do, do, you, do you agree with this assessment? And if not, why? I agree and I disagree. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> That's a typical, typical Jewish from us. <laughs> uh, fundamentally, I agree with you that it's, it's a liability because as long as it continues and we deepen the situation, we're reducing the chances that we'll be able to separate. And that's the overall strategic uh, challenge. So that's a liability. There's also a liability of day-to-day -day just defending all the settlements and the settlers. Okay. That's a big burden on the IDF. Clearly, it would make the IDF's life much easier if it didn't have to do that. But the IDF's mission is to defend Israelis wherever they are. Where I think you have to take into account is that there's also a current security challenge. How do we best defend Israel itself? Okay, let's say pre-67 Israel. And the West Bank plays a role in that. Had we not settled it and kept it, in effect, a strategic buffer between ourselves and the East. Now, today, the, east, the immediate East is Jordan. That's a good East because mm -hmm. Jordan prevents any terrorism. 
But remember what comes north of Jordan and what comes east of Jordan. That's right. Okay. And east of Jordan is, a, is an Iranian-dominated Iraq. Mm -hmm. And if Iran really takes over in Iraq, even 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 if it just continues the way it is today, if God forbid the Jordanian monarchy collapses, and that could happen, or is weakened from within, and Iran can then go from having infiltrated uh, Iraqi society, it can do the same in it's harder because Jordan is Sunni, but it can enter Jordan as well. It could take over in Jordan if the monarchy collapses. And then we have an immediate border with, with, with Iran. And, uh, okay, if you look to the north, there's Syria. And Syria is today an Iranian-dominated country with Shiite militias coming in and pushing out the Sunnis, uh, changing the trying to change the demographic balance. There are still external threats where the West Bank has an important security role to play and it has an important security role to play just in terms of terrorism uh, we don't want the west bank to become a second gaza uh, the last thing it's bad enough that they've got uh, something like twelve thousand rockets aimed at tel aviv and all the rest of israel at yerushalayim at Haifa, from gaza we certainly don't want them to do it from the west bank where the shortest range almost most primitive rocket can hit tel aviv so there are some very strong uh, security considerations to take into account. And I, as you know, I'm one of those people who believe that in the context of a peace agreement, we can find security arrangements that will address those concerns in a reasonable manner. As a matter of fact, matter of fact I think in the context of a peace agreement, it will improve our overall strategic position. But if we can't reach a peace agreement with the Palestinians, and I don't think we can, because I don't think they're capable of signing a, a final peace deal. Capable I, or incapable? I don't think they're capable. They're incapable. 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 And our current... Because they don't want to? Because even those who want to can't put it through. Um, I mean, uh, I don't mean to stop you, but I, I agree with you in the sense that current leadership... In Israel, right. as well as the Palestinians, are today, incapable will deliver peace. And so we have to begin with the premise that you need you're going to need new leadership on both sides Agreed. committed to a peace agreement. Just one point I might mention about Iran. Recently, a few weeks ago, I think it was Rouhani who said that if Israel and the Palestinians reach an agreement, we have nothing against Israel. Did you hear that? No. I not. It was reported. I haven't seen that, and yeah. I'd really like, really like to see where that came from, because it's different from everything else, including the, the Iranian chief of staff, who in the last then few days what spoke is, about Israel's annihilation. Then what is what it is that is Iran, from your perspective, has against Israel? I mean, Jews and Persians have lived for centuries, millennia together. I think the Iranians can live fine with non-Muslim minorities in their midst. The fact is that there was a Jewish and a Christian... There's still a Jewish community in Qatar. Yeah, a few hundred people. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. I think that they have a problem with any state, whether Jewish or Christian, any non-Muslim state in the Middle East. Um, and I think it's a theocratic commitment to Israel's existence. It stems from that. Because otherwise, there's no reason for this enmity. They're 1,300 kilometers away from Israel. So we don't have a common border or any common territory to to be in conflict over. We don't have a shared population to be in conflict over, no resources to be. There's nothing. 
we're far away, and this is a case where Israel's interests are really quite clear. It's not like on the Palestinian issue, the West Bank, where some people in Israel want to annex. Um, the only thing Israel really wants from Iran is to leave us alone. Because we have no, there's no reason for the conflict. Yeah, yeah. And I think what it boils down to is a theocratic commitment on Iran's part. Let me go back to the book, mm -hmm. uh, because we want to, I want to talk a little bit about the Israel defense strategy and what is the component of the strategy and how is it being employed and uh, to the, the, the success that Israel has experienced by adopting this, this strategy which you wonderfully articulated in your book. Thank you. So what is the what strategy? What are the main components? You know, you, you, in the book you indicate a number of components among which for example preemption under certain conditions offensive action under certain other conditions. How did Israel was able to neutralize to a great extent terrorism, for example? You elaborated on all of that and some. Well, it, it's been 70 years of very hard work. There's no one element that did it. It's a combination of things. The, the classic defense doctrine had three fundamental principles. The first was uh, deterrence. Yes. And the second was, it's called the three Ds. The second yeah. was detection or really early warning. Right. And the third was decisively de defeating the enemy. Yeah. And we managed to do that for the first decades. It was always a play for time between deterrence and defeating the enemy. We never really defeated the enemy in in the full sense of the word. We never achieved what the U.S. achieved in World War II, which is unconditional surrender. But we managed to repeatedly um, win time. Each of the victories bought us time and bought an Arab recognition that Israel was here to stay. Mm -hmm. And in the early decades, that recognition wasn't there. It was all about destroying Israel. But by the 70s, after the Yom Kippur War, which was a partial success for the Egyptians, but they had enough. And they came to the conclusion that they could not achieve their goals, which were right. returning Sinai and uh, switching to the U.S. camp, without making peace with Israel. I think peace was the price the Egyptians paid to get Sinai back. It's not that they wanted a real peace with Israel. The Jordanians, or at least King Hussein at the time, wanted a peace. But we exhausted them militarily. Or they, or they came to the conclusion that it just wasn't worth continuing the warfare anymore if, in the Egyptians' case, they could uh, get the territory but back. But over the last 40 years, however, they did develop vested interest in the peace, the, the peace treaty. That is, yes. It's almost inconceivable for them today to change their approach. Well, their well during the year when Morsi was the president, the Muslim Brotherhood uh, president, I'm not convinced that had he remained in power that the peace treaty would still be, still be there today. I'm not saying we'd necessarily have gone back to war, but that was a possibility. And I think the peace treaty itself would have either been annulled or just turned into... There would have well, been any... Well, well, possibly, yeah. It's possible. Okay, but you're absolutely right that it has been 40 years with the Egyptians, and it's, what, about 30-something years with the Jordanians? Yeah. And that's a nice piece of time. And that's, again, a big success. Now, the question... And back in the 90s up to 2000, and then again in 2008... 
We had very intensive talks with the Palestinians. In the 90s, we thought it was going to lead to a breakthrough. And we were very close to a breakthrough with the Syrians as well. Yes, yes, yes. So I, I believe that eventually the same will happen with the Islamists, with Hezbollah, with Hamas, with Iran. Uh, it's going to take longer because they're theocratic movements. So I think their level of commitment is deeper. But I hope that repeated, uh, limited, uh, it's not even limited victories because we didn't win any of these rounds against Hezbollah or Hamas. But we bought time with each of these so, rounds. So what's going to take then to change the dynamics between these groups, the Islamist, uh, Shiite leaning or Shiite, uh, that is going to eventually bring them to the conclusion just like the Sunni Arab states today, who concluded Israel is there to stay, and there's really not much they can do about it. And in fact, they just moved from um, uh, giving up the idea of, of destroying Israel, but actually is now reaching out, as you well know, the Saudis, the Gulf state, the North African state, by and large, are reaching out to Israel, and there's a, there's a some kind of relationship, you know, albeit mm -hmm. not publicly recognized. So what is going to bring uh, Iran and Hezbollah and others to the point where they will reach to the same conclusion, short of reaching an Israeli-Palestinian peace? Well, I don't think that it can happen without an Israeli-Palestinian So peace. that is a prerequisite. That's a prerequisite. But I also think it's, it's that, and it's another, <laughs> unfortunately, a few decades probably of... Um, ongoing conflict before they decide that enough is enough. I don't know that an Israeli-Palestinian peace would solve it. It would certainly make things much easier for Israel. And it would, take, it would make it harder for them to continue fighting the war. What would their justification be vis-a-vis yeah. -vis the Arab world? Even towards their own people, they'd have a harder time selling it. I think it's not the people here, it's the governments which are, have this right, commitment. Because right, right. the Iranian public clearly is much more moderate than, than the government. But the good news, by the way, is what you mentioned. Uh, again, I mean, this is 70th year anniversary. The emerging relationship with the Sunni states, with the Saudis, the statement by the crown prince just a couple of weeks ago, recognizing not just recognizing Israel, but recognizing Israel's right to right. exist. Uh, that was, this that is was, dramatic. That is dramatic. That is an, uh, coming from Saudis. Yeah, the keeper of the whole That is revolutionary, in my view. I, th I agree with uh, you. Yeah, I think absolutely this is, stunning. Absolutely stunning. I, I agree fully. This is almost like Sadat coming to Jerusalem. In terms yeah, of the yeah, huh? yeah. And now then, um, but the Palestinians still remain passive and unwilling to accept this obvious, clear trend that the Arab world has moved away from the Palestinians to a great extent. That is, uh, I think the Saudis and others have really put the Israeli-Palestinian country mm -hmm. on the back burner to that thing, because they are concerned, far more concerned with Iran than concerned with the future of the Palestinian as such. Uh, and don't you think the Palestinians recognize that? And the time now probably is against them rather than in um, that working on their behalf? Uh, Abbe Evan famously said that, uh, well, he was speaking about the Arabs generally, but certainly the Palestinians have never failed to miss an opportunity. And uh, I think it's a sad joke, but it's true. I think the Palestinians, as a body politic, have this incredible capability to miss opportunity after opportunity after opportunity. I think there's a problem, which is that the Palestinians' ethic and this is a Middle Eastern ethic, but I think it's particularly pronounced with the Palestinians, 
is it's all or nothing. The idea of reaching a decent compromise doesn't seem to be a very strong ethic there. And that's why they rejected all of the dramatic proposals that were put forward to them. They want 100% of their demands, and if they don't get 100% of their demands, then they'd rather forgo the whole deal. I was always under the impression that if somebody offers me 90-something percent of what I want, I should grab it and run before uh, the guy changes his mind. And I think you're right. The time now is probably against them. If they wanted a state, their chances of actually getting one are de decreasing yes. by the day. But the problem is, <laughs> I'm interested in solving the Israeli problem, not the Palestinian problem. It turns out that our two problems are totally intertwined and you can't solve one without the other. So maybe the Palestinians are, the time is against them, but that means the time is against us as well. Oh, absolutely. Let me just go a little bit to, to the Gaza, given the situation today in Gaza, uh, some 35 or 38 mm -hmm. uh, Palestinians were killed yeah. along the Israeli borders. Uh, the international community, by and large, has been condemning Israel mm -hmm. for using, so to speak, excessive force. Uh, there is a blockade on Gaza. We know that this is going to is a, extremely difficult to maintain, given the outcry of the Palestinians in Gaza. I mean, this is basically a large prison. You know it. I know it. And uh, the people, if we were, if it's left to the uh, people, uh, the rises, they would want to move on with their life, but it is the government, just like you know, you know the, the government itself, as Hamas itself, as an organization. It's really the one that is blocking any uh, serious effort to mitigate the conflict. But we also know that Israel, like we, you said before, rightfully so, is the, uh, much more, uh, by far more powerful. And I spoke to Gaza, to people from Hamas, and they acknowledge this. They acknowledge and say, you know, we know Israel is back to flag, is going to stay there. They, they talk about Hudna for 20 years, you know, ceasefire for 20 years. They talk about to maintain a sort of kind of momentum. Um, given this reality that you spoke about, I've been saying that you, we're going to need some kind of a transitional period. Transitional period where you have to begin to change the psychological dimension of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. You know, you, you focused a great deal on, uh, for good reason on the security. But if we, that is not um, uh, accompanied with effort to change public narrative and public mindset, <coughs> then we, in 10 years down the line, we're going to still be talking about the same issue. That is, Israelis and Palestinians alike, in my view, are victimizing the next generation, the next generation. And if you do not have responsible leadership on both sides to accept, not just accept the reality, but begin to, a, a different kind of public narrative, to begin to change the mind of the public that there is Israelis, there is a Palestine, and they need to accept one another, and your organization basically promotes the notion of two-state solution, as far as you're concerned. Yep, yep. I agree with you completely. Um, and I think we need a change of leadership on both sides. Uh, in our case, it may or may not happen in the next elections or the elections thereafter. In, in Israel's case, you know there will be elections every few years. And the Israeli public is going to make its decisions. And I hope we can change the narrative. Uh, and uh, one of the reasons that I joined the uh, 
Commanders for Israeli Security, CIS, which is an organization of uh, almost 200 uh, generals and other former top defense officials, is because we're trying to use our defense bona fides as a way of explaining to the Israeli public how essential it is to reach a two-state solution and that we can do it in a way that will ensure Israel's security. Uh, we have an uphill battle because we have a prime minister who's a very effective public communicator, and he plays on the public's fears. And, exactly. Yeah. And th there is justification for these fears. He takes it and magnifies it. Now we need two changes, at least on the Palestinian side. First of all, I think we just simply need a change in the leadership. Abu Mazen is in his 80s. He's, he was never an audacious leader at the, the best of times. And the Palestinians, at least in terms of the PA, are in a process of succession, which may still take another few years. We don't know who's going to be the next leader. There's going to, there's going to be some sort of transition, or maybe, and there could be a triumvirate for a while. Who knows how things are going to go? The whole thing could come apart. And Hamas, I think, has begun a, a process of self-examination, the initial signs of some internal mm -hmm. change. Yeah, it started with amending ever so slightly the right. charter. Exactly. Yeah, Just like yeah. the PLO did in the 80s, yeah, yes, and it right. took another yeah. 20 years. So maybe in 20 years from now, we'll, we'll be able to talk to Hamas. But I think at this point, there, there's not a great deal to talk to them about beyond some tactical stuff. The only sure thing is, I want to, I'd like to get a reaction to it. And what, what we see in Israel is, however, um, you read the platform, you know, Gabi was elected the leader of the mm -hmm. Labour Party. Mm -hmm. And his public statements and, and sound almost like, like uh, Netanyahu in so many different ways. Uh, there is a, that is, uh, Israelis from the center and the left of center. They fear that they cannot come to power unless they sort of echo some of what the right and the right of center are saying. So there is a movement more and more toward the center and right of center in Israel. Please correct me if you think I'm wrong. And the continuation of the conflict with the Palestinians also engendering and um, the radicalism to some extent. I mean, this, as I see, there's two trends. You know, what we just said before. On the one hand, Hamas is becoming to realize sooner or later this is, they have to change. But in the same token, there's a new generation is becoming extremely more radical. We see that in, in Israel as well, this phenomenon. And then, of course, you, you spoke also very on the demographic dimension uh, of, the, of Israel. So how, how, do you, how do you put all of this together in order not to go backwards in an effort to eventually reach an agreement with the Palestinians. Because there are some trends now taking us backwards rather than forward. Both demographically as well as in terms of radicalization. Well, there, there is a problem of radicalization on both sides. The left and the center-left in Israel talks in the way you're saying and I think you're exactly right, because they're, they're trying to appeal to the couple of percent of swing voters. They know most of the right they can't convince, and most of the left they don't have to. It's the couple of percent of people who may uh, be amenable to persuasion. And so they're actually talking in a way which much of the left doesn't even like, but they understand the, the tactics behind it. It hasn't worked that effectively in the past, but again, we're talking about trying to sway a small number. Gabay has, <clears throat> has reasons for uh, believing that maybe he 
given his background, uh, can speak more effectively to this swing audience because he himself is a member of the swing. Yeah. And uh, there's a Sephardic population, uh, was a Likudnik, an ardent Likudnik. He famously brought his mother to his uh, victory speech in the yeah. Labor Party, and she announced that she was now going to switch her allegiance from Likud to Labor. Uh, we'll see how far it goes. The sad news is that demography is Israel's internal demography is against the center and the left at the moment because the Orthodox population is exploding. Yes. And the Russian population, which uh, should vote center and center left given their socioeconomic status, because of their past as Russians, they tend to vote for the right. So it's a hard sell to swing the Israeli public. Uh, how we do it is not easy. We may need some charismatic new leader. Uh, I don't see him. Do yet. you see anyone in the open, you know, some courageous visionary? I don't so see if, if an election were to held tomorrow in Israel, uh, can you can you see predict who might be? Hmm. <laughs> well, <laughs> that's the <laughs> toughest. <laughs> Having already written one prediction in the past, which <laughs> about the results of an Israeli election. Which, which did not pan out that way. I'll be, I'll be more careful this time. Look, if you look at the, at the polls the last few weeks, maybe people would have expected that the prime minister would have been hurt by all of the revelations, the ongoing talk of the corruption charges. His popularity has actually gone up. It's amazing. It strengthened him among the base. It's incredible. Just like Trump. Just like Trump. <laughs> but elections won't be held probably... Uh, to 19, you think, still? Well, or? second... Not, not earlier than late 18 and maybe 19. Uh, uh, and then we'll see how the legal issues have developed. Uh, that could hurt him. Right. Uh, if he's actually formally charged, indicted, that could hurt him. Uh, we'll what, see. What I don't do, want to make any predictions What do you point. hope for? <laughs> Well, I, I would like to see a change in leadership, but I'm, not, right. I'm not convinced that I see a wonderful change uh, among the alternatives today. Either. Yeah, not in, 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 anytime soon. Well, thank you so much. Thank, thank you, you very thank much. You. I think uh, I really appreciate you taking the time. And uh, hopefully we can, when you get back from Israel in September in the fall, we can get together again. With pleasure. Yeah, that would be great. Thank you again, Chuck. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this episode on the issues. You can find this podcast on my SoundCloud page and stay tuned to my social media accounts for the latest analysis and announcements.